0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKW.
1: Welcome to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates helping you get out of debt. Going to talk about bankruptcy. Is bankruptcy right for you, uh, considering personal bankruptcy to deal with unmanageable debt. There's lots of things that, it, 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 that are important for you to know before you make that next step. And the good news is that Blair's going to outline the personal bankruptcy process in British Columbia, as well as some key aspects of this often. And I would say, I totally agree with you, Blair, it is often misunderstood bankruptcy has like this this awful connotation to it and i'm not saying that it's a fabulous wonderful experience but it is a very useful option for for folks
0: yeah that's exactly right elaine there's there's been a negative stigma and you know and i understand it's not something no one sets out to to, you know have to declare bankruptcy but it is a reasonable um You know, it generally it's an option that in a nutshell it's not as bad as people think, and something that can be absolutely life changing, allow you to get things back on track and start again fresh. So you'd never set out wanting to declare bankruptcy, but if you're in a very tough situation, it can absolutely be a lifesaver to get you back to zero.
1: Excellent. Okay, so let's start. Can you explain what it means to declare bankruptcy in Canada uh, now versus, you know, a long time ago?
0: Yeah, well so first off, it's generally pretty private. Um, so, you know, many years ago, every bankruptcy was in the newspaper. I think in the past year, maybe one or two of the thousands we have filed have appeared in the newspaper. So, it's generally a pretty private process. So, if you think not many people are filing bankruptcy because you don't see it in the newspaper, well, that's not the case. It's just, a, it's generally a very straightforward and private process now. What personal bankruptcy is, is, the legal debt relief process available to you if you're struggling to pay off your debts and you need debt forgiveness. So, personal bankruptcy means that you get legal protection from your creditors and you're able to eliminate virtually all of your debts. So for most people, bankruptcy is very straightforward. You'll work with a licensed insolvency trustee only. There's no need for you to hire a lawyer. You don't have to make a court appearance to start the process and, you know, explain how tough things are and that you deserve this relief. None of that has to happen, and you don't need to get your creditors to give you permission to file for bankruptcy. So Sometimes I have people in my office saying, well, you know, is the bank going to let me do this? I'm like, well, it's your option. It's not the bank's option. This is federal law that gives you the right to get this protection from your creditors. The overall goal of a bankruptcy, and this is right from the legislation, I do like this wording, It's to provide the honest but unfortunate person an opportunity to start fresh, free from the burden of unmanageable debt. So those two words, if you've been honest but unfortunate, then absolutely you are the person that this legislation is aimed at to help you get things back under control and from a financial point of view. Uh, When you meet with a licensed insolvency trustee, we never start at bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is the last resort, and over 80% of people that come to see us, they're successfully able to avoid a bankruptcy by filing a consumer proposal, which they consolidate the debt, pay back a reduced amount. We've got some really great information. We're going to talk about that in other segments, but for about the 20% of people that do need to file for bankruptcy, you know, the benefits of doing so are they get full forgiveness for just about every type of debt. They protect their assets and their income from creditors, including stopping any wage garnishments immediately. They stop the stress of debt and the overwhelming payments. And then finally, they get that fresh start where they'll be able to start again, owing nobody anything, start to rebuild and have a better financial future. In many situations, bankruptcy is going to be advantageous. It's often the least expensive and quickest means of getting out from under a huge unmanageable debt burden.
1: And uh, what kind of time does it take? What's the length uh, that a bankruptcy usually asks?
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to, to give the clarity on that, Elaine, because a lot of people think, you know, bankruptcy is a life sentence or it's at least seven years, so on and so forth. And it absolutely is nothing like that. So for most people, they're in bankruptcy for a period of as little as nine months. So the scenario is nine months is most common where you've never been bankrupt before. There's no opposition to your creditors to you finishing bankruptcy. So no one can object to you starting bankruptcy. But, you know, if you borrowed $100,000 two weeks before you fought bankruptcy, you can bet that that person who's owed $100,000 might have some objections. But assuming that's not the case, you've completed all of your duties. And there's a means test in a bankruptcy based on your household income and household family size. And if you're considered low income, uh, bankruptcy can finish in as little as nine months. If you're not considered low income, there's a year's difference bankruptcy would run for 21 months if you've never been bankrupt before. Uh, once you're in bankruptcy, all your debts are frozen, so no one's able to pursue you for payment or take any payments from you. Um, and then once you finish the bankruptcy, all of those debts are legally discharged, which means they're forgiven, they can never get attached to you in the future. You know, our goal at Fans & Associates is that you have a stress-free, no surprises experience, which means that you exit bankruptcy on time without it costing a dollar more than it has to. And the way that we achieve that is we just try to be really clear with with you about you know what you have to do during the bankruptcy to successfully come out the other side one of those key bankruptcy duties
1: okay um can you if can people file bankruptcy more than if they file bankruptcy more than once are there different timelines involved for them at that point
0: There are, yeah. So if you file bankruptcy, you know, theoretically, there's no limit to the number of times you can file for bankruptcy, but reasonably, I've seen people file for three times and that's that's been the highest. Uh, But generally, if you're filing a second bankruptcy, it is going to take longer. So a second bankruptcy, where a first bankruptcy can, can be as little as nine months, a second bankruptcy is at least 24 months or two years. And if you're not low income, a second bankruptcy lasts for a year longer, which is 36 months. So there's a ton of numbers we've thrown out for some who's sure. never been bankrupt before it can be as little as nine months if you have been bankrupt before it's as little as two years and if you're not low income those timelines are extended by about a year in each case
1: okay so if you think bankruptcy is your way to go, And you want more information, certainly make that appointment with Sands and Associates, and they're going to walk you through the process. The phone number is 1-800-661-3030 or check out their website, sands-trustee.com. So, um, I'm not sure where you want to go at this point. I know that we, that there's things like your duties if you are completing a personal bankruptcy. Would you like to do that? Okay, let's do that then because there's some good information here, folks.
0: Oh Elaine, we could talk for hours about this, and trust me, I love to do. That. That's what I do all day, every day. So it's hard to you know to, to condense it down to just a few minutes here, but we're going to try. So okay. what happens when you file for bankruptcy is you got no further responsibilities to your creditors. You know you don't have to answer any of their calls; they all get redirected to the trustee. But you do have some responsibilities to the bankrupt estate, is what it's called, and to basically complete the bankruptcy and achieve that discharge from your debt. So some of the tasks are very basic; you'll do them without thinking too much about them. Other are a little bit of work that you got to keep up on on a monthly basis, but in general, it's all positive steps that are going to help you in the future. So what happens when you're going through the bankruptcy, you have to let us know if there's any big changes to your household, family, or your income. If your income goes way up or way down, if there's different people living at home, so on and so forth, that can impact the scenario of bankruptcy, whether it's a nine or 21 month scenario, can be based on your income um, and how many people are in the household. You want to keep your trustee informed of your address and your contact information so generally we can reach you if we need to some of the biggest work that you have to do in bankruptcy is actually some of the most worthwhile is that you have to complete a monthly statement of income and expenses or a household budget form for every month you're in bankruptcy. So part of bankruptcy is a financial rehabilitation process. So by keeping a budget every month, you're laser focused on, well, what's the income that's coming in down to the penny and where is that going? How much for rent, food, Shelter, so on and so forth, and if there's no debt payments that are now dragging you down, it can be really telling that if your budget still isn't balanced, okay, we've got some. Choices that we have to make, or um, you know, issues to resolve. So when you're in bankruptcy, you're required to keep that budget every month, and then at least two times during the bankruptcy, and could be for every month depending on the circumstances. You're going to submit that budget to the trustee, and then the trustee is going to validate that yes, the income is there, it's supported by a pay stub, yes, the person's living within their means each month, the budget looks great. Okay, this bankruptcy is proceeding according to plan. So when you're in a bankruptcy, the monthly budgeting, I often tell people that's about. 80% 80% of the work. So forget about the past. What's going to matter now is that you keep a really good budget, you keep track of things, get yourself on a good financial footing. That's the majority of duties that you'll have to perform in the bankruptcy. The other really important one is you have to attend two financial counseling sessions. So we've talked about them before in the context of both consumer proposals and bankruptcies, the same requirement. They're 45-minute sessions, one-on-one private sessions, talk to you about great tips for budgeting, for setting financial goals goals, for rebuilding your credit in the future. People can recover from a bankruptcy in as little as two to three years and be credit worthy enough to get a great mortgage if they're ready for that. So um, not a life sentence, and we want to help you with the counseling on how you can recover. So when you file for bankruptcy, you do the monthly budgets, you attend two financial counseling sessions, and the payments that you have to make are generally geared by your income. If you're low income, you just pay a basic bankruptcy fee of around $2,300 over the nine-month period. If you're not low income. It's a percentage of your income that can vary if your income goes up or down.
1: Is there sort of a general rule of thumb about my assets if I file personal bankruptcy? Are there some general things that affect most people?
0: Yeah, the general rule of thumb, Elena, most people, again, this is counterintuitive. What happens to your assets in bankruptcy? Well, generally, you keep them. Okay, and that sounds weird, I know, because most people think, I file for bankruptcy means that I've surrendered everything, I've got nothing left anymore. Theoretically, that's the case when you file for bankruptcy, you're surrendering your assets, but there's provincial exemptions that say, hey, there's certain assets that you would never have to surrender no matter what. There's public policy benefits to actually leaving somebody with something to reestablish themselves. So in the province of BC, if you have a home, it's not a foregone conclusion you would lose that if you filed for bankruptcy. There is an equity exemption. Now, it's relatively low in the context of what the market's done recently, but up to $12,000 of equity in the greater Vancouver or greater Victoria area is exempt. If you file for bankruptcy with less than that amount of equity in your home, literally nothing happens in that case. But what's more common is people don't own real estate, but they take advantage of other exemptions, which are household items. So your furniture, um, you know, household furnishings, personal effects, they're exempt up to a value of $4,000 at a garage sale value, which I've never had somebody with more than that for a garage sale. You're allowed an exemption of one vehicle of up to $5,000. Most of the time we see vehicles with loans against them where the equity is far less than $5,000 and that's totally fine. Uh, you're allowed exemptions for your work tools, your tools, the trade of up to $10,000. Um, anything you need for medical purposes or essential clothing is an unlimited exemption. And then what's hugely important for people to know and any longtime listeners would know this, your RRSPs are 100% safe. So if you file for bankruptcy, there's nothing you have to surrender from your RRSPs. The only potential exemption is if you've been socking a ton of money in there in the, you know, the year before you filed for bankruptcy, those contributions have to come to pay debt, with the logic being, well, maybe you could have paid debt instead of contributing to the RRSPs, but anything that's there for more than 12 months, you do not have to take a penny out that can be protected for you on the other side of the proceeding.
1: What about life insurance policies and, and pension plans, Blair?
0: Yeah, that's important as well. So almost all life insurance policies are exempt. It matters who the beneficiary is. So generally within your family is great. We can give you more information and every pension plan I've ever seen has been exempt. So people are worried they can lose their pension. That's just not a thing in Canada. You'd never lose your pension for filing for bankruptcy.
1: And first steps for somebody who's wanting to do to file a bankruptcy is sit down with you.
0: Exactly. Come in for a free confidential consultation or meet us online or over the phone and we'll get things going.
1: Awesome. You're listening to Dollars and Cents and you've been listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The website again, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. This segment is, we're comparing two very important key pieces for you. If you're, think, if you're in debt and you want to take some action and you're not too sure. It's about consolidating with a consumer proposal versus credit counseling. Um, so what's the difference to? between consolidating a debt with a consumer proposal or getting in one of those credit counseling programs. Um, consumer proposal or doing getting into the program, two ways of settling debts that don't require you to borrow money, which is probably one of the things that makes them most attractive. Uh, Blair's going to talk about the differences between the two. Um, but can we talk about first, Blair, how similar they are? Because there is some similarities.
0: Oh, definitely, Elaine. So I think focusing there can, can make a lot of sense because sometimes people get the remedies confused because they're similar enough to be confusing, but they're so different in some of the really powerful aspects. And you know, even how much they're going to cost you. That it's definitely worth understanding how they sim- how they're similar and how they are different as well. So in terms of what's common between a consumer proposal and working with a credit counseling plan, so both are debt management options and they're alternatives to consolidation loans and alternatives to filing for personal bankruptcy. So they're meant to save you if the bank won't help you with a consolidation loan or you can't afford it and you're worried about, you know, um, the worst case scenario of you having to file for bankruptcy. These are your methods to restructure your debts without going into bankruptcy. So both consumer proposals and a credit counseling debt management plan are going to help you to consolidate your debts into one settlement without having to borrow any new funds. They're going to allow you up to five years to make payments. That's the maximum duration and it can certainly be shorter than that they're going to give you some type of education and resources to help build on your money management skills, whether it's budgeting, credit rebuilding, um, all those things, you're going to get some education during the process. Uh, It's not a factor for you to have great credit score or a poor credit score or a long credit history or just a brand new person. You don't need to qualify uh, from a credit score point of view to do either a proposal or to start a a credit counseling debt management plan. Um, And in terms of the credit rating impact, they're remarkably similar. So any time you restructure your debts and you don't pay them off in full there's a notation that goes in your credit bureau and in both a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal that typically lasts for two to three years following the completion uh, of the program you're not stopped from seeking new credit during that time but it means if someone pulls a credit bureau on you they're going to see that you're in either a credit counseling plan or a consumer proposal for that period of time
1: okay so are there some differences then do you, do you want to talk about those at this point
0: yeah I think that that's really important. So in terms of what's a huge difference between credit counseling and consumer proposal um, is in a credit counseling plan when you're working with a credit counselor it's not administered by a trustee and anyone that listens to our show they know for sure a trustee is empowered by the federal government we can help to reduce debt. We can force creditors to accept the lower amount than what they might like if the other creditors want that, want that settlement. So we've got a lot of extra powers. If you're doing a credit counseling plan you are paying back 100% of the debts that the plan can include, and so it can't include all of your debts, it can't include government debts like a trustee can help with, but in a credit counseling plan, you're gonna pay back 100% of the debt, um, but you're generally gonna save on the interest. So if you owe $20,000, for example, you're gonna pay back $20,000, but there won't be any extra interest or fees charged upon that. That contrasts significantly with a consumer proposal where it's a question of how much can you afford to pay back. So in most cases, people are offering thirty to fifty percent of the total amount. So in the twenty thousand dollars example, you might be offering back six thousand or ten thousand dollars, for example, and that's in full and final settlement of your entire indebtedness. So where they were sounding similar before, okay, both consolidate your debts, both give you, you know, no interest and in time to pay off. It's a huge difference in that a consumer proposal can probably save you at least half or maybe two-thirds or more of the debt where a credit counseling plan that's just not an option. You will pay back 100% of the debt, but you'll get it a little bit more time to do so and at no interest.
1: So if your interest has already been uh, peaked in terms of your situation, give Sands and Associates a call. It's very easy to do. I'm going to give you the one eight hundred number one 3030 and set up that first call and see if uh, see if they can give you a hand or at least even trying to figure out your situation and and the best uh, the best step to take next. Um, the other big thing that I found really interesting. I remember when we first started doing this is that a like License insolvency trustee is federally regulated by law. You have to follow so many rules and regulations Mm -hmm. to be able to do your job versus pretty much everybody else, right?
0: Well, that's right. So, you know, even a credit counselor, again, they might be, you know, very experienced or or things like that, but there's no formal accreditation that says, you know, suddenly this person can call themselves a credit counselor, for example. Uh, Federal law says you can only call yourself a licensed insolvency trustee if you've been granted that license by the government. Otherwise, it's an indictable offense. It's a very serious thing, and you're not going to go around saying you're a trustee when you're not. Uh, And that's the reason for that is, again, just the power that a trustee has um, to essentially bind creditors to a settlement to give people access to federal law where everything that a credit counselor does is based on an informal agreement with or with individual creditors. So in a credit counseling settlement, as we said, you're going to pay back 100% of the debt. The credit counselor is going to try to negotiate um, the interest freeze with all of your creditors, but there might be some creditors that just opt out. They say, well, no, we're not agreeing to an interest freeze. No, we're not going to agree to back off and not sue this person. You know, By what authority can you force me to accept no interest for the next five years? And the credit counselor says, well, I've got no authority. I'm just trying to, you know, do best efforts to get a good deal here. So there are cases where people are in credit counseling plans and they're still being sued and they're still being collected against. There are certain creditors, government being one for income taxes and for student loans, they will never work with a credit counseling plan. So if that's part of your situation, you're not going to be well served by only sorting out the debt that can be included in in a credit counseling plan uh, versus having to deal with some on your own. There's a huge difference with that with a consumer proposal. So because it's a formal remedy, it's supervised by a trustee, it's based on federal law, um, first off, we can bind creditors to the sta- to the settlement. And what I mean by that is we don't need everybody to agree. So for a consumer proposal to succeed, all we need is 50% by dollar value of the people who are owed money to say yes. And we get that at about 95 to 99% of the cases. When we file a consumer proposal, so the example I gave earlier, of someone who owes $20,000, as soon as we have $10,001 of that person's debt, that say, yes, we will accept a consumer proposal for 30 cents on the dollar. The balance of that debt, the other $9,990 or $99, um, they are forced to accept that same 30 cents on the dollar. Even if it's the government, they can't opt out, they can't take any action against you. So it's something that the, all you need is a majority in value that wants to work with you and you have a consumer proposal that's going to work with all of your debts, uh, including the government debt. So that's just hugely powerful so the ability to get all the creditors on side and then again that ability to reduce the debt to what you can afford so not a hundred cents on the dollar probably closer you know 20 to 40 cents 30 to 50 something like that and the reason why a trustee can do that is a trustee shows a comparison to each of the creditors that says you know as a federal officer i've reviewed the entire situation and if this person were to file for bankruptcy you creditor are going to get back five or ten cents on the dollar maximum and that's the person's option they could file for bankruptcy the there's nothing the creditor can do about it. Here's the win-win. Here's the win to you creditors. They're going to offer you back 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. And the win to the individual is they don't have to file for bankruptcy. So a trustee can present those scenarios, work with the creditors to get them on side, and almost always a proposal gets approved.
1: I think one of the other big things is, and I'm sure somebody's asking themselves this question. OK, I get it that it's a bonus to go with a licensed insolvency trustee uh, to deal with my debts and to deal with the, the people who are wanting my money or, or whatever. Um, the, one of the big differences, though, is how do how do how do they get paid? How does a licensed insolvency trustee get paid and how does a, a debt counseling program get paid? Because there's there's got to be a difference between those two.
0: Oh, there definitely is, Elaine. So um, starting with a credit counseling plan, for example, so you're paying back 100% of the debt, and then sometimes there's a small administration fee or education fee that might be tacked on to that, you know, sometimes it's 25 or $50 a month. It's usually not significant, and some people find, okay, there's good value for that. But where the credit counselor really makes their funds um, is they get a commission from all the creditors who are getting their money paid back. They often pay roughly 22% of a commission back to the credit counseling firm to, you know, thank them for helping them not have to get a collector involved for getting them all their money back so you need to realize when you're dealing with a credit counselor they're actually getting the bulk of their money from the creditors from the people that are essentially at odds with you and it's kind of tough to wear that that many hats where you're working on behalf of the creditors getting paid by them but trying to also do the best for for the individual in front of you because if a credit counselor knows hey this person would be better served by a consumer proposal than a debt management plan I'd like to hope they would refer that person to a credit uh, to a credit to a a consumer proposal, but they would make no money at that point. So the kind of the, the motivation can be at odds there to what's better for the client. When you're dealing with a trustee with a consumer proposal, you pay nothing above and beyond what you can afford to repay on the debt. So again, if it was a $20,000 debt and you're offering $6,000 back as a settlement at roughly 30% and you pay that at $100 a month over 60 months or 150 over 40 months, whatever works, that's all that you pay. The costs of administration are all set by the federal government and they're deducted from your payments before the creditors get their share. So of the $6,000 that you're paying in, creditors will get the lion's share of that, you know, close to 80% or so. The balance goes for government fees, trustee fees, counseling and so on and so forth but to you the individual you will never get a bill from a trustee you'll never get a bill for a consultation for a call if you have a question if we have to help stop a wage seizure or a garnishment everything is included in the cost you pay with the proposal and if I can just make one more point on fees uh, it's nothing that you ever need to pay up front. So, if you're doing a proposal at 100 or 150 dollars a month, you just start making that payment after the trustee has put the proposal together, spent a bunch of time with you. Um, you never have to pay an invoice upfront or any large upfront fees. You just start making your proposal payments once you file the documents.
1: Cool. Now, we've got about a minute and a half left in this segment, Blair. Can we can we talk about the things or the considerations you suggest people keep in mind when they're weighing their options at looking at both of these? Because it's a really terrific list for folks to really think about before they make that decision.
0: Yeah, I think it's good to, to finish here, Elaine. Is, you know, First off, the big question, what can you afford? You know, can you afford to repay 100% of your debt uh, if the interest was stopped? Is that the solution that you need? Okay, if so, credit counseling might be an appealing option. Uh, most of the people that I deal with, they're in my office because they can't afford to repay 100% of the debt, even if the interest was stopped. Or if they could afford to repay 100%, it's that significant hardship to themselves and to their family. Um, so if you can afford to repay 100%, okay, maybe that's a reason to consider a, a credit counseling plan, but if you can more afford to pay 30 to 50, 20 to 40%, something in that range, a consumer proposal is definitely an option worth exploring every time. And if it's the case there's any government debt at all involved or any illegal actions taking it against you if wages are being seized or you're being threatened to be garnished, that's when you absolutely need the protection of a consumer proposal administered through a licensed insolvency trustee.
1: And it might just take an hour to figure this out, to get started, to become debt-free. Can you imagine just an hour? And very easy to do. Connecting with the professionals at Sands & Associates, you can book your free non-judgmental consultation. I'll give you the phone number one more time. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or check out the website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars & Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. Now, uh, relationships, man, oh, man, uh, there's so many things that can go or that can cause problems in relationships, but money, debts, uh, financial issues have to be right up there at the very top, and that's what this segment is all about. Um... And it's about giving you options and giving you things that you can actually do or things you can think about. Dealing with debt and finances can be a pretty big source of stress for people and that gets even more amplified in any kind of relationship. And Blair, it's so great. You're going to share some tips to help mitigate, maybe avoid some of those call, uh, common challenges that uh, debt can bring to those really significant relationships. Um, Blair, what do you think, or is there one that stands up out for you is a key issue uh, that debt causes in uh, in people's relationships these days?
0: You know, Elaine, there, there's so much into, into that question. I'm so happy we're going to spend some time talking about that today uh, because it absolutely is the case. Money can be probably the number one stressor in many couples' relationships. It can literally drive, drive them apart, unfortunately. Uh, but what's really awesome is that when you solve that problem and I've seen this you know firsthand for many years now uh, the couples can actually rebound and be that much stronger by facing a money problem head-on and having good communication open communication uh, and pursuing solutions together so it can be a huge source of stress but uh, you know comparing to some solutions that don't have in some problems that don't have a straightforward solution this one does you know the answer uh, to dealing with a lot of debt problems is getting the right information choosing the right person to assist you and then committing to the process. Process that's going to get you back on track and there's a ton of things to consider when you start um, you know to become a couple or start to live together or get married and a lot of the times the assumptions that we've made or maybe we've heard you know very financially sophisticated people in our lives say that it's a definitive truth uh, are actually not the case when it comes to debt so a couple of big things that I see when I sit down with couples uh, is there's often a misunderstanding about legal responsibilities to creditors so many people are under the impression that if you marry or if you're common law because you're co- habitating with somebody, if you marry somebody, you also marry the debt. And for anyone that listens to us on a long period of time, you know we come back to this again and again. It's so important for people to know it's absolutely false. There's no automatic liability that spouses assume just by being married. So for example, if I owe the bank $10,000 for a loan I took out as a sole borrower, and then I get married bank is not suddenly able to turn to my spouse to pay that debt if I stop making the payments. So just by being married, the bank is not suddenly in some better position where now they've got two people they can collect for. It's literally whoever's name is on the invoice, on the loan agreement, on the bills or whatever. Um, That's the person that is liable, not their spouse. Now, in some cases, a spouse can be responsible for debt through marriage or cohabitation, but that's generally if you've, on an eyes-wide open basis, you've co-signed for that debt. Maybe it's a loan, a lease, or a credit card, so whether you understood all the implications or not, you actually physically put your signature on the dotted line to be responsible for the debt. In that case, yes, you would have a joint responsibility with the other borrower. And the other scenario is if, unfortunately, if the relationship dissolves, if there's a divorce or if the cohabitation uh, breaks down, there is the ability for one partner to say, you know, that $10,000 debt I was mentioning before, well, I actually took that out to use that for the benefit of the entire couple during our relationship, and therefore I want to make a claim against my spouse for half of that debt. So spouses can claim against each other, for joint debts, if the relationship is breaking down. But where I said before, that 10,000, I think I picked Royal Bank. Royal Bank, for example, can't claim half from this spouse. It's just between spouses. Does that make sense, Delane?
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, and it's really good information because it's such an, it's like an old wives tale, uh, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you marry somebody, you marry their debts, you marry everything. Um, and that's just not the case. So I'm really glad that, that that was the focus. Um, so here's the deal. If you already know that it's time to take some action, if you're in a situation, you're thinking, oh, yikes, I, I don't know what to do next. I know I need to do something. Give Sands and Associates a call. It's 1-800-661- Thirty thirty. so um let's move forward then blair what's your recommendations to folks uh to avoid or try to resolve these kinds of situations that that people find themselves in
0: Yeah, there's a few tried and true methods that you know. If you apply this in every situation, you know, hopefully you're going to avoid being in in somewhere that you hadn't anticipated ending up. And the first is just to be totally clear on what you're actually committing to. So you want to proceed with extreme caution before you're agreeing to co-sign or co-borrow with another person or business, family member, whoever. Just really be aware that even if you think that this person is never going to default, you'll never be called on um, to to deal with with the co-signed responsibility. If you are, cosigning is what's called a joint and several liability. So a lot of people think if they cosign, okay, I'm one of four borrowers. That means my worst exposure is 25% of the debt. Well, no, you're one of four borrowers, it could be 40 borrowers, whoever doesn't pay the debt, um, whoever's able to pay the debt is going to be charged 100% of that balance. That's what joint and several liability means. So if you have a joint debt with your spouse because you've co-signed and the spouse is unable to pay anything on that debt, you're not on the hook for 50 cents on the dollar, you're on the hook for 100% of that debt. So you want to definitely understand what it means when you co-sign a debt and then also read the fine print of any loan agreements because sometimes there could be an Acceleration clause, which could allow the creditor to demand full payment immediately if the borrower breaks any term of the agreement, maybe even misses just a couple of payments. And this could be you know, you helped somebody by co signing for a consolidation loan, they miss a couple of payments, and suddenly the bank is asking you for $10,000 instead of you know, $300 a month for the next number of years. So you've got to be very careful you know what you're signing on for. Uh, But a second really important thing, you know, beyond reading all the fine print, is not trying to hide any of your money or your financial issues, Um, you know, within the couple, honest and clear and open communication is always your best interest, but seeking support from a licensed insolvency trustee right away, if you find the debts are starting to impact your relationship, is always good advice. So if you find your emotional health, your mental health, a lot of people feel physical manifestations of the stress of debt, that's not going to help your relationship get better. It's going to you know work at cross purposes to that. So definitely you want to seek professional help and have that open and transparent conversation with your partner as well health.
1: Now I know that, and just going ahead a little bit, I know that that's a very significant uh, bit of piece that you really live by in terms of making sure your clients try to follow this the best they can is that openness in the conversations about situations. and I and I know that that's one of the keys for you when it comes to just kind of managing budgets for, let's say, your household or the marriage, or you know, just keeping the the household I probably is the best way to describe that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elaine, you're, you're talking to the guy who was on CTV uh, Morning Live and Global Morning Live, telling people, well, on your third date, you probably want to get your credit report and review the credit report <laughs> together, have some financial intimacy. Uh, I actually got really good re- uh, responses based on that, because it is a good practice. And, you know, maybe it's being a, a little bit flippant on the third date, but I'd say <laughs> before you're married, uh, you definitely want to be sitting down, reviewing your credit reports together, understanding the situation that each person is in, and understanding clearly you can each take different routes um, to get to, you know, dealing with the debt and making making the couple financially better off. Um, you know, I know we've got just a couple minutes here. I think one other pitfall that I see couples often fall into, and sometimes this can be, you know, rather tragic in the outcome, is just that one person has done it all. Forever, one person in the relationship, whether it's the husband or the wife, is dealing with the money because quite often, well, they're good with money and I'm not, and you know, I just never learned, you know, where all the accounts were and what we had to do. And the thing to take away from this is that no one is born with money management skills. So just because one spouse is better with numbers now, um, doesn't mean you know they were naturally born that way, and it doesn't mean you can't get there too. And we have meetings that sometimes can be a little bit sad where a spouse has unfortunately passed away and the surviving spouse can barely make heads or tails of what's out there and what's owed and where this money is going to you know can they access the funds from a bank account that didn't have their name on it so you just really want to make sure that it's not you know one person handles the finances with no input from the other that it's a shared priority between the couple because you'll have a much better outcome dealing with life's challenges um, and you know even getting the right help at the right time by making sure that you're both well informed on in the the defiances of the couple.
1: Yeah and I mean once you're able to do that, then if something bad does happen or debt is included at a huge rate or all of a sudden you have this thing that you've got to deal with, it's something that you can both take action on.
0: Mm-hmm. You can avoid the blame and the shame which you know doesn't help anything and doesn't make you feel better.
1: No, no, exactly. Such good information, Blair. The other thing that I want to throw in here as we wind this segment up is the website. Your website is so good for all of this information. Uh, first of all, it's sans-trustee.com. And there's just such good questions and thoughtful answers to regular questions that people have before they sit down with you or after they sit down with you in that first appointment just to get some clarification or just to really understand something that they didn't understand before. It's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The website again, sans-trustee.com. So this is an interesting segment. It is so current uh, because you know, Blair, that people are already dealing with. I'm talking about CERB. Um, and and what we're going to find out in this segment is learn what we can do if we can't afford to repay that SERB. And of course, CERB is that Canada Emergency Response Benefit that, thousands and thousands of people took advantage of in a good way because it was needed and now not so much or at least now you've got to repay it i mean does everybody have to repay it i have to admit i'm not up to date on all the serb stuff blair
0: yeah, these are all really good questions. And just in terms of the uptake on on this program, so if you remember back, you know, the the very um, tough times of March 2020, the start first lockdowns of the pandemic. You know, this was the government stepping in and saying, you know, people need to have a basic income if they're you know working in the restaurant sector. We've closed all the restaurants. We're telling people to stay home. You know, they need some money coming in the door. So the government acted very quickly, um, you know, to get two thousand dollars a month out to just about anybody who said they were eligible. So the government wasn't. Ch- checking anything they were saying you know based on an individual certifying just a couple of questions within a couple of days they would have the money hit their account um, and we said you know it was thousands of thousands of people that got that money well it was actually about 40 percent of the labor market in canada about eight or nine million people wow um, received some payments from serve it just blew me away when i saw that number the first time um, so odds are if one or several people in your life if you're listening here um, has received serve or maybe yourself as well um, so what serve was it was the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. It was $2,000 for every four-week period. And there were a few reasons why the government is saying now, well, that money that you got, you may not have been entitled to it and we're starting to go back and starting to take some gradual steps towards collections, which we know are going to get more intense. But there can be some reasons why, um, you know, they're going to try to collect CERB. Uh, the government's going to try to collect on the CERB payments, Is that you applied for it and later determined that you weren't eligible, um, in some cases, people do, didn't meet the $5,000 income eligibility requirement. Uh, And in some cases, the government wasn't very clear on that, whether it was gross income or net income for self-employed individuals. Uh, For some individuals, they got served, but then they ended up earning more income than they had anticipated. So maybe they went back to work sooner. They had some retroactive pay from their employer. Uh, When CRA does the math, well, they weren't actually entitled to the money that they got. And then in some cases, we've seen individuals that received serve from both EI and Service Canada, sorry, from both EI and Service Canada and CRA for the same period. So you could apply under two different umbrellas. Uh, if the systems had been robust and, you know, not just thrown together very quickly to deal with a crisis, they probably would have caught these duplicate payments. But we we're seeing individuals who were receiving sometimes $4,000 a month instead of $2,000 a month. And, you know, you can imagine if you're getting notices or information from CRA now, that you might have to repay some of that debt, that can be very distressing. And, you know, what we've seen is the vast majority of clients that have come forward to discuss with us about serve overpayments, they're not in any position to repay that money. And what serve was aimed at was immediate living expenses. It was to get you to pay your rent, to pay the groceries, to keep, you know, the food and shelter um, as it's needed. Um, so it's no surprise that just about anybody who received these funds, it was spent pretty immediately just to literally keep the lights on. Um, so now what Sierra is saying um, is that if you received benefits that you weren't entitled to, you're first to be sent a notice of redetermination. So they're going to say, well, we've now determined you weren't entitled to those benefits. If you can't pay the overpayment debt in full now, no interest or penalty will be applied on the COVID-19 benefit overpayment debt. So that's a change with CRA. Again, they're being more lenient than they have been in the past. But starting this year, um, if you have a balance owing, CRA may start to keep your future payments. So it could be tax refunds, GST credits, those quarterly checks that people like to get as a a surprise, nice surprise from the government. You may not get those if you have a SERB overpayment. Um, But what's really shocking to me here is if you're receiving EI benefits from the government, SERB debt will be recovered by Service Canada automatically at 50% of your EI benefit rate. Well, what does that mean? So let's say you were expecting $1,800 a month as EI. You needed to pay your rent and your groceries. If you've got a SERB overpayment, the government's probably going to pay you half of that EI, which is going to put people in incredibly difficult situations. So my eyes kind of jumped out when I, when I saw that. I'm like, wow, that is harsh. 50% of EI income is going to put some people in a very difficult situation.
1: Yeah. I just want to mention, if you already know that you're in a situation that you could use some help and want to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee and figure out how to, what to do and how to do it, uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the number for Sands & Associates. So um, what if someone believes they won't be able to repay their CERB debt? What about government what about government collections? Because I, I, my sense is, not even knowing the answer, Blair, is that they're going to come after the money.
0: Oh yeah, so this is, right away we can confirm this is not a debt that there's going to be any statute of limitations towards. It's not, you know, like a credit card. If they don't sue you in two years, they lose the right to sue you. With government debt, there's no expiry, so whether it's now or whether it's later, the government is going to collect on this debt. Uh, as we said, at present. They're taking a milder approach, we'll say, but CRA is the most powerful creditor. It's the last person you would ever want uh, to owe money to because what they can do with virtually no notice to you is take extreme steps that any other creditor would have to hire a lawyer, go to court, give you notice, spend a bunch of money. But CRA with very little notice can garnish your wages. Um, They can take not just employment income, they can take CPP, as we mentioned, EI. Um, They can take any source of income can be garnished. And typically, if it's it's a creditor um, There are limits to 30% of your income CRA has no such limits I've seen them garnish 100% of CPP debts so literally someone's pension plan I've seen them take 100% of that they're not going to start there with serve over payments but depending on how things go year after year I would expect this balance to fall into the same categories of how they approach other debts uh, they could seize your future income tax ref- ref- refunds or benefits um, they could place holds or literally take the money out of your bank account uh, and then they could also place a lien on any of your assets. This is most commonly with your real estate. And that would mean, you know, if you've got the home with a bunch of equity, when the mortgage comes up for renewal, your lender is probably going to require that you do what you have to do to pay out CRA, and they would get their money at that point. So they've got just a ton of remedies. None of them are going to be enjoyable to find someone's registered on tile to your home or starting to take your wages. And we expect to see more and more of that um, as 2022 moves on and we get further distance between when these CERB funds were advanced.
1: But that's where a licensed insolvency trustee can come in because you you treat it like a an, a regular or not a regular debt, but but the other debts that we've talked about.
0: That's exactly right, Elaine. That's what. What folks should take hope about um, is that yes, this is a severe debt. CRA has a lot of power, but a licensed insolvency trustee can stop CRA dead in their tracks with almost all of these actions. So, if your wages are being seized, you come and see a trustee, we do either a proposal or a bankruptcy, and that wage seizure has to stop the next day. If they haven't registered on title to your property, if we do a bankruptcy or a proposal, they're not able to register on title to your property. So, we can forestall CRA from taking action, or if they have taken action, and we can generally undo a lot of what's hurting you but it does require that you reach out that you get the right help at the right time uh, from the right professional and if you know you have a CRA or a CERB debt you know not filing your tax returns is not a viable option you know it might last for a year or so but eventually CRA knows the money that went out they also have all the other sources of income um, you know all of your T4s are logged to CRA eventually they're going to do your taxes for you it's called an arbitrary assessment I can pretty well guarantee you won't like the result it'll be a high balance owing that'll come even harder to collect. So the right answer is to file the taxes every year. And if you're aware of a SERB debt that's going to be coming towards you, start to get advice now from a trustee so you can get that protection. You can stop Syria from taking any further aggressive actions against you.
1: And I think, uh, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is you're not alone. I mean, what did you say the number was, Blair? How many people took CERB? Yeah,
0: between uh, eight took the- and nine million, about 40 percent of the labor force.
1: Right. And so there's a percentage of that, that th- of those people that it was of great benefit and they were able to utilize it properly and all that stuff. And then it'll be interesting to know what percentage of people really need some help with it now as they're just trying to manage it. And that's the key is SANS and Associates. No judgment, just solutions and support. Visit sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 and that's toll free. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt.
0: The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKW.